Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D., and today I'm bringing you the conclusion of the case of Lisa Knafel in Willoughby Hills, Ohio. If you haven't heard part one yet, you might want to skip back. You've missed a lot. And with that said, let's get right to it. Last week, we left off with Sabrina Zunich sitting down to talk with prosecutors in a proffer agreement six months after she murdered her foster mother, Lisa Knafel, by stabbing her 178 times. Prior to this agreement, Sabrina had pled not guilty to Lisa's murder. As their discussion began, the prosecutor let her know that they believed she didn't plan Lisa's murder alone, and Sabrina confirmed everything investigators and the prosecution now suspected. The prosecutor said, What we believe from conversations is that what led up to this homicide, to this murder, is that there was another party involved in planning that. Sabrina replied, Yes. She paused and then said, It was Kevin Knafel, my foster father. After another long pause, she continued, It was Kevin's idea and it was talked about after we were having sexual relations and he and Lisa were having problems in marriage. Hold up, wait a damn minute, what? Kevin Knafel was a 41-year-old grown-ass man with a whole wife and children. Sabrina was his foster daughter. What in the seventh circle of hell was happening here? Sabrina explained to investigators that this sexual relationship, or child molestation, because let's call a spade a spade, had started months before Lisa's murder when Sabrina was just 17. And according to Sabrina, Kevin had been grooming her long before things turned sexual. Kevin had taken advantage of the fact that Sabrina had an interest in becoming a massage therapist. According to court documents, the inappropriate touching started with Sabrina massaging Kevin's legs. Kevin claimed his legs cramped because he was a truck driver, so he had his teenage foster daughter massage his inner thighs. In the fall of 2012, after Sabrina started attending South High School, Kevin would usually drive her the 10 minutes to the school, during which time they would engage in sexual activity. If that's not enough to gag a maggot. Kevin had also threatened that if Sabrina ever told, she would be taken out of his care and he'd lose his foster license. But wait, there's more. As it turned out, stabbing Lisa wasn't the first plan. Sabrina Zunich told the prosecutor about a conversation between herself, Kevin, and Autumn, a high school friend of hers, that had happened in Kevin's car when he was taking the girls out to eat at a Chinese buffet. A conversation in which they discussed hiring a hitman to kill Lisa. The hitman was a friend of Autumn's, but according to later testimony, Autumn backed out because she didn't want to be involved. 
In another instance, weeks prior to Lisa's murder, Kevin suggested that Sabrina use a pistol of his, one that he claimed couldn't be traced back to him. Kevin instructed her to wrap a pillow around the pistol before firing to muffle the sound and then hide the gun in the basement where he would dispose of it. The two had plans to go to a shooting range so Sabrina could practice firing the weapon, but they fell through because Lisa wanted to go to the range with her husband. In other conversations, they had discussed how Sabrina could stab Lisa. Kevin had given Sabrina clear instructions, telling her that if Lisa was laying on her side, she should drive the knife between her shoulder blades, if Lisa was lying on her back, to stab her in the throat, and that Sabrina was to twist the knife after stabbing it into her body. If you remember from last week, the medical examiner testified that several of Lisa's wounds were what he described as complex, further stating that the knife had been twisted as Lisa was stabbed. Kevin told her that she should attack her foster mother at night, after she had fallen asleep, but before the time Haley woke up and crawled into bed with Lisa. Sabrina was instructed to make it look like a burglary, by emptying out clothes, drawers, and the jewelry box. Kevin had planned every detail out, even down to what Sabrina should wear and how her clothing should be disposed of, telling her to wear tight clothing that covered her body and to leave the clothes in a bag outside the garage. He had a plan B if the fake robbery scenario didn't play out, and Sabrina was caught in the act. She was to claim insanity or self-defense. The arrangements for the final murder plot had been made on the morning before the night of the murder, as Kevin drove Sabrina to school. Kevin pulled the car over and told Sabrina about a fight he had with Lisa. He was crying and laid his head on the steering wheel as he told his then 18-year-old foster daughter that he, quote, can't stand anymore, so I'm going to kill myself if she's not dead. That's when Sabrina Zunich agreed to go through with the plan, not because she wanted to kill Lisa, but because at that point, she was in love with Kevin and didn't want him to harm himself. According to Sabrina, as she spoke on Snapped Behind Bars, that night she and Kevin stayed in constant communication. Kevin reminded her of what she should wear, which knife she should use, and how she should stab Lisa. Sabrina kept Kevin updated on what was going on in the house and when three-year-old Haley had gone to sleep. She claimed the last text message she sent to Kevin stated, I'm about to do it. I love you. I'll see you soon. While investigators, to include the FBI, never retrieved exactly what the messages said, according to court documents, they were able to verify that between 7.12 p.m. on November 15th and 12.46 a.m. on November 16th, the hours and minutes prior to the murder, Kevin and Sabrina exchanged 78 messages. In that same time frame, there were zero messages sent between Kevin and Lisa. And further, between November 1st and 16th, 2012, there were a total of 1,491 communications between Kevin and Sabrina, which seems a little odd considering the fact that during that same period, there were only 201 communications between Kevin and his wife. Sabrina went on to tell the prosecutor that after she sent that last message to Kevin, she armed herself with the knife, 
walked into Lisa's bedroom and stood there while Lisa slept for about 10 to 15 minutes, internally debating whether or not she should go through with the plan. According to Sabrina, Lisa must have sensed someone was there because she woke up and initially thought it was her own daughter, Megan. She called out to her and said, Megan, go to bed. Sabrina froze and Lisa sat up. Lisa then realized it was Sabrina, and before she could react, Sabrina began stabbing her. As we know, Lisa fought back, and Megan eventually awoke due to the commotion and tried to stop Sabrina, but she just nudged her off and continued to stab Lisa. Megan called police while Sabrina continued her attack until she was sure Lisa was deceased. According to Sabrina, when she heard police outside the bedroom, she cut herself to make it look like she had murdered Lisa in self-defense. She had been injured by Lisa as she fought for her life, but she wanted it to be more believable, so she inflicted a few more injuries to herself. Of course, she then claimed to have blacked out and had no memory of the attack, just as they had planned. According to Detective Parmador of the Willoughby Hills Police Department, as he spoke to Dateline, Kevin had convinced Sabrina that even if she did get caught, she'd only serve two to five years in prison due to her age, and that he would be there waiting on her when she got out. They go on to live this fairy tale life with a dream home. Sabrina could go to college, land the job of her dreams, and be Haley's new mom. While it seems this was the main motive for killing Lisa, it doesn't appear it was the only. Sabrina stated on that episode of Snapped that she hated Lisa because Lisa made it clear that she wanted her out of the house just prior to the murder. She went on to say that this triggered her abandonment issues and caused a fracture in their relationship. As the distance grew between her and Lisa, she became closer and closer to Kevin. Sabrina stated, he never judged me and he made me feel wanted and he was always everything I needed. It seems that as Sabrina began spending more time with Kevin, Lisa began to question the nature of their relationship, rightly so, and it appears that was the reason she wanted Sabrina out. The perfect storm was brewing and Kevin took full advantage, pitting his foster daughter against his wife. Sabrina was more convinced than ever that if she murdered Lisa, the woman who had taken her in when no one else would, Kevin would be there waiting to take care of her and give her the life she always dreamed of. But that's not what happened, because before Sabrina was even tried in a court of law, Kevin ghosted. In that proffer, the prosecutor asked, have you talked to him? Sabrina said, no, nada, no money on my books, no letters, no calls, nothing. And while we're on the subject of money, there was another reason Kevin wanted Lisa dead. Well, roughly 750,000 of them, to be exact. In the month before the murder, Kevin had told Sabrina that Lisa, quote, would be worth more dead than alive, as he showed her multiple life insurance policies. While it seems Sabrina's motive was in part to have this life with Kevin, it looks like Kevin's motive was a little more basic than that, the age-old motive of pure greed. 
You see, Kevin's greed was what tipped investigators off in the first place that there might be more to this story. I mean, that along with his strange behavior and lack of cooperation with his wife's murder investigation. The reason the prosecutor was willing to talk to Sabrina in that proffer in the first place was because it always seemed a piece of the puzzle was missing. Now they had found that missing piece, but what had led them there? We'll have to rewind to the morning of the murder. As we know, it was verified that Kevin Knafel was on the road driving his truck when Lisa was stabbed. He was notified and then headed home from Michigan back to Ohio to pick up the two girls from the police station. According to court documents, when Kevin arrived, he met with Patrolman Molinax, who was one of the responding officers in the station lobby. The patrolman noted that Kevin was relatively calm. And before the officer could get into any detail about what had happened, Kevin told him that he was some kind of EMT, and he had seen stuff like this numerous times, and the officer wasn't going to tell him anything that he hasn't seen before, and he wanted to know every detail about what had happened. This man had just learned that his wife was brutally murdered by his foster daughter, and this is the first thing that comes out of his mouth. And it only got worse from there. Because once Kevin left the police station, he immediately began filing claims on those multiple life insurance policies. And when I say immediately, I do mean immediately. Literally hours after Lisa's murder, Kevin was hot dialing the insurers to make those claims. Kevin must have had too many calls to make because his close friend David would later testify that he had met with Kevin on the morning of the murder at Kevin's mother's house. Kevin was reportedly crying and upset and told David he already had plans to meet with a funeral home, but he needed his friend to obtain some information about another life insurance policy on Lisa. He also asked his friend to shut down Lisa's Facebook and email accounts because he didn't want to deal with people leaving messages. I just want to point out here that Lisa had an immense amount of family, friends, and co-workers who would have loved the opportunity to pay tribute to their beautiful friend. But Kevin was hell-bent on taking that away from them. Later that afternoon, David received insurance forms that were delivered to Kevin's mother's house. He then went with Kevin to the funeral home to make the final arrangements for Lisa. After they were done with the arrangements, Kevin told David he needed to go to the jail to visit Sabrina to, quote, make sure she was okay and to let her know that he was still there for her and that he hadn't given up on her. And as it turned out, Kevin had already contacted the Willoughby Hills police and asked about Sabrina's location and visiting regulations. The morning, the day after the murder, Kevin drove down to the Lake County Jail and asked to visit Sabrina. When he was informed by an officer that Sabrina had no available visitation that day, Kevin appeared anxious and stated that he needed to see her and he wanted to know who had taken up the visitation time. Jay Leonard, a correctional officer at the Lake County Jail, later testified that Kevin remained in the lobby a few moments after he was told he couldn't visit Sabrina. He then returned to the window and told the officer that he really needed to see or visit her 
as he put his hands forcefully on the table and said, You don't understand. I do need to see her because I'm her foster father. He was unable to visit, but he did add his name to Sabrina's visitor list and left a note for her. A note that Sabrina never received since that was against jail policy. After leaving the jail, he and David went to two separate AT&T stores, one to get a new battery for his phone, and the second, a branch in Willoughby, to disconnect both Lisa and Sabrina's phone lines. While they were out on the phone deactivation operation, Kevin contacted several of Sabrina's relatives in hopes that they would relay the message that he wasn't ready to give up on her and would be there for her. He then made arrangements to return to the family home where his wife had been murdered to pick up some clothing. He was met there by Detective Brian Jackson of the Willoughby Hills Police Department. He asked police to make sure that there was no media presence and told the detective that he wanted to go inside the house to see the room where Lisa was murdered because it would give him closure and help him move on. So he wanted to tour the gruesome scene, but he damn sure didn't want anyone to know he had done so. Got it. Detective Jackson told Kevin that entering the house was a bad idea. Although the scene had been released, it had not been cleaned up, and the murder had been brutal. But Kevin was adamant, so he made his way inside. The officer noted that Kevin Knafel displayed no emotion. After viewing the bedroom for a few minutes, Kevin stated that he wanted to have the house cleaned and Lisa's belongings moved out. A crime scene cleanup crew arrived later that day. Members of that crew later testified that Kevin appeared emotionless and matter-of-fact, telling the crew that he had a $250,000 life insurance policy and the cost didn't matter. He just wanted the home cleaned. At one point while they were cleaning, he asked them to look for a finger and a ring that might be in the bedroom. Again, he remained calm throughout all their interactions. A long-term co-worker and friend of Lisa's also spoke to the grieving husband that day and recalled the same calm demeanor. And at one point, Kevin made the comments to her that the $50,000, the amount of Lisa's salary, would be a lot to make up. The family home was cleaned that Saturday, and on Sunday, Lisa's belongings were removed from the house. It had been just a little over 48 hours since Lisa Knafel had been stabbed 178 times. There hadn't been so much as a funeral service yet, but Kevin was attempting to erase every trace of her her Facebook, her phone, and now all of her belongings out of the home they once shared, all while desperately trying to get in contact with the person responsible for her murder and cash in on as many policies as he could. If there was a handbook on how to look suspicious after your wife's murder, Kevin was checking off each box in dramatic fashion. Family and friends gathered on Tuesday, November 20th for Lisa's services. She was remembered as the loving mom she was, who enjoyed spending time with her children and devoted her life to serving her community and helping others. Her family encouraged those attending to continue Lisa's legacy by donating to the Royal Family Kids Camp, 
a charity that provides mentoring for abused, abandoned, and neglected children in foster care. They ask that this be done in Lisa's honor, just as she would have wanted. Lisa's children, her friends and family, and all of the many she had impacted over the years were absolutely devastated. But her husband of six years? As you can imagine by now, he sat through the services emotionless. Hey y'all, I found an all new podcast I'm so excited to tell you all about. It's called Body to Burial. Body to Burial is a true crime podcast that brings you exclusive, in-depth, unscripted conversations with death and crime adjacent professionals. From embalmers, hostage negotiators, to a forensic psychologist. I just listened to an episode all about crime scene cleanup. Let's join hosts Mariah and Nikki as they tell us a little bit more about it. He was desperate and he was going to kill a woman for sure and possibly a child. The bloodstains that were found on his clothes were specific to him being there during the crime. She had a six-year-old, put him outside and set him on fire. This is Body to Burial, a new podcast that explores the untold, behind-the-scenes stories from professionals involved with death. There's always the evidence. It's our job to find what that evidence is. I've gotten the fingerprint off of some of the most strangest places you would never think. Like what? The last one I could think of was a partially torn condom wrapper. It's glamorous. <laughs> We've heard all about the crimes and the killers. Now we get to hear about the professionals behind the scenes and focus on the good people making a real difference. I wanted to get as close to the mystery as I could. I kind of fell in love with death and what a sacred act it is to be able to care for people. Some of us that are in there because our job is to speak for the victims. I'm Mariah. And I'm Nikki. We are just two regular true crime junkies who decided it was time to see crime from a new perspective. You know, when the police show up or the FBI, a lot of people aren't excited. Our efforts in negotiations are primarily focused on lowering the emotional confrontation that we're in. Typically, that leads us to a solution. It's part science lesson. I've taken fingerprints off the bodies that were burned. As the body begins to burn, they begin to curl in. You, I don't want to grow too hot. No, you're not. This is fascinating. Okay. Keep going. The barrel has grooves cut out, and that imparts a spin on the projectile, which makes it more accurate. It's also part philosophy. You can't stop it. The body, no matter what, knows how to die. Ritual is important for marking these parts of a life. And death, of course, is the ultimate. And it's part therapy. Because we're so afraid of death and have a death aversion, we think there's a lot of quiet suffering that happens as a result of that. Join us each week as we tell the stories of the professions and the people in these fascinating fields. Do you keep anything from your <laughs> cases, like little mementos? Serial killers keep mementos. I don't <laughs> keep mementos. Body to Burial, a new true crime podcast. Coming soon. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. In the weeks after the murder, investigators worked to tie up loose ends in the investigation. So naturally, they needed to sit down with Kevin and see what insight he could provide. But Kevin didn't arrive to the police station alone. He brought an attorney and refused to answer any questions unless they were about Lisa's job. Police had plenty of witnesses who were willing to speak about Lisa's job including those that worked closely with her, so they didn't exactly need Kevin for that. However, 
That's all he was willing to talk about. He refused to answer any questions about their marriage, personal life, or Sabrina Zunich. Rather odd behavior for a man whose wife was just murdered, if I do say so myself. As time ticked on, Sabrina Zunich remained in jail. And Kevin, who was once so desperate to see his foster daughter to let her know he hadn't given up on her, never made contact with her again. Instead, Kevin was out burning money left and right, purchasing several new vehicles and making renovations to his home. While his behavior had always struck investigators as off, there was not much in the way of physical evidence tying him to the crime. However, after Sabrina Zunich came forward and spoke with the prosecutor, and investigators were able to corroborate aspects of her story with those closest to the Knafels, the prosecutor presented what they had to a Lake County grand jury. And on August 8, 2013, the jury indicted Kevin Knafel on a laundry list of charges, 11 in total, six counts of sexual battery against Sabrina Zunich, conspiracy to commit aggravated murder times two, complicity to aggravated murder times three. Kevin was arrested on those charges the following day. A week later, on August 16, 2013, he entered a plea of not guilty to all counts. Everyone began to prepare for trial. On November 18, 2013, Kevin and his defense filed a motion to suppress evidence. They wanted phone calls between himself and a cooperating witness for the state, Autumn. Y'all remember her, right? She was Sabrina's friend and the one they had discussed the murder-for-hire plot with on the way to the Chinese buffet. Anyhow, Autumn had made phone calls in the presence of officials trying to get Kevin to talk about the plot. Although he never admitted directly to being involved, he didn't act shocked or ask her what in the hell she was talking about and instead just kept putting all the blame on Sabrina. Detectives felt this in itself was evidence that Kevin was involved. He didn't actually need to admit to anything. Of course, the defense wanted this thrown out, claiming that the calls and texts violated the laws of the state of California related to wiretapping in addition to Kevin's Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment rights. But the court ruled that the evidence would come in because there was no requirement for a warrant. The opinion read in part, both federal and Ohio courts have long permitted the warrantless recording of conversations between a cooperating informant and a defendant. In addition, the California law cited was completely irrelevant. Since Kevin was a resident of Ohio, the crimes occurred in Ohio, and he was in Ohio when he spoke with Autumn. Obviously, the state of Ohio doesn't adhere to the laws of California, so the jury was going to hear it. Kevin Knafel's trial began on May 29, 2014. The prosecution presented much of the evidence we've discussed, the life insurance policies, Kevin's odd behavior, and how those around him thought his relationship with Sabrina was inappropriate. One of those witnesses was Kevin's longtime friend, David who not only testified about Kevin's actions after Lisa's murder, but also about a camping trip he had taken with the Knafels a month before the murder. David told the jury that on this trip in October of 2012, 
Kevin confided in him that he and Lisa were fighting because Lisa believed he was having an affair with Sabrina. Kevin told his friend that he was considering seeing a divorce attorney. While he had never openly admitted to the affair, he had shown David what are described in court documents as modeling photos of Sabrina. He also told David that Sabrina had picked out underwear for him that she thought would be comfortable. Not weird, right? Other witnesses included Sabrina's social worker, who testified that Kevin had contacted her the month prior to the murder to ask if Sabrina could remain in his care if he were to divorce Lisa. She informed him that that was a possibility. Sabrina's probation officer testified that in July or August of 2012, Kevin contacted her noticeably agitated because Sabrina either was dating or was wanting to date an older boy. He asked her to speak to Sabrina about it. The probation officer agreed, and Sabrina cried, stating that she didn't understand why it was such a big deal since she was almost 18. The officer advised Sabrina that she was to follow Kevin's rules since she was living in his home. Of course, the star witness was Sabrina Zunich herself. She walked the jury through her relationship with Kevin and how it had turned sexual in the months leading up to Lisa's murder when she was still a minor. She testified all about the multiple plots between herself and Kevin to murder Lisa, and she detailed exactly what had happened in the early morning hours of November 16, 2012. She recalled that she had killed Lisa because she was in love with Kevin, and he had promised that after the murder, they could start that new life together, and she could raise Lisa's youngest daughter as her own. The jury clung to Sabrina's every word. When it came time for the defense, there really wasn't much of one. It was more about the lack of physical evidence. They placed the blame solely on Sabrina. A handful of witnesses testified, including Kevin's sister, who said that when Kevin was at their mother's house on the day of the murder, he was crying and emotionally distraught. This was to counter the prosecution's claims that Kevin was emotionless over the death of his wife. A fellow classmate of Sabrina's told the jury that when she and Sabrina were riding the bus together, Sabrina had stated that she hated her mom, Lisa, and that she was going to kill her. At no point in this particular conversation did Sabrina express that her foster father knew of the plot. And that was basically it. It came as no surprise that on June 11, 2014, the jury returned a verdict finding Kevin guilty on all counts of the indictment. He was later sentenced to two years in prison for each of the six counts of sexual battery for a total of 12 years and life with parole eligibility after 30 years for complicity to aggravated murder. All sentences were ordered to be served consecutively, and he earned himself the title of Tier 3 Sex Offender. Kevin Knafel is currently serving out his sentence at the Lake Erie Correctional Institution in Ohio. He'll be eligible for parole in 2055, when he will be 85 years old. On August 18, 2014, Sabrina Zunich changed her plea to guilty in the aggravated murder of Lisa Knafel. Before accepting the plea, the judge asked Sabrina a series of questions to make sure she fully understood what she was doing. One of those questions was if she had in fact killed Lisa 
to which Sabrina responded, I stabbed Lisa Knafel to death with the cooperation and planning of Kevin Knafel. Tears were streaming down her cheeks as she spoke. Sabrina was facing a maximum sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, but the prosecution recommended she be sentenced to life in prison with parole eligibility after serving 30 years as part of the plea deal they had made with her in exchange for her testimony against her foster father. On September 29, 2014, everyone gathered in the courtroom again as Sabrina Zunich learned her fate. Presiding Judge Richard Collins Jr. stated that Sabrina deserved life without parole due to the brutality of the crime. He said, The gruesome, shocking, and revolting nature of the crime was among the worst I've seen. The victim was screaming for help, begging the defendant to stop. She did not die immediately. I cannot imagine the nature of terror and fear. Judge Collins ultimately decided to honor the plea agreement, and Sabrina was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 30 years. But the judge made it clear the only reason he had decided to do so was because Sabrina had cooperated with authorities and testified against Kevin Knafel. Sabrina Zunich is currently incarcerated at the Dayton Correctional Institution in Dayton, Ohio. She will be eligible for parole in 2042, when she will be 47 years old. Even as Kevin Knafel and Sabrina Zunich sat behind bars, their legal troubles weren't over just yet. As it turned out, a wrongful death lawsuit had been filed on behalf of Lisa's two daughters. And in February of 2017, according to WKYC News, an Ohio judge awarded the girls $6.2 million in damages, a $5 million judgment against Sabrina, and a $1.2 million judgment against Kevin Knafel. While this was a huge win for the girls, no dollar amount will ever be enough to cover the loss Lisa's two daughters feel in their mother's absence and the trauma of witnessing her brutal murder. Lisa Knafel was a biological mother to two. But over the years, she had stepped in and became a mom to so many children that needed her. She was selfless, loving, and always looking for ways to serve in her job and her community. The impact and legacy she left behind is immeasurable. Friends of Lisa's spoke out on Dateline and said that despite what had happened, Lisa would never discourage anyone from providing a home to a foster child because it was something she truly believed in, even fostering when she was a single mother. Lisa Knafel will forever be remembered for her giving spirit and how deeply she loved her daughters. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all-new case next week, and I can't wait. In the meantime, make sure you check out Body to Burial, a true crime podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. 
And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.